So if you'd like to turn uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 1156 of the Church Bibles. Uh, We've already spent two weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so tonight we're completing the trilogy. Um, So if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read from that shortly, but let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Lord God, as we uh, come to hear your word preached tonight, I pray that um, I might echo the words of the Apostle Paul as he uh, wrote to the Corinthians, that I wouldn't come with eloquence or so-called superior wisdom, uh, that my message and my preaching wouldn't be with wise or persuasive words, but that it would come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that faith might not rest on my wisdom, but on your power. Lord God, we pray that you would make us ready to receive from what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, even a brief look at the world around us uh, will show us that there is very little clear thinking about life after death. To see that that is the case, you only have to look at or listen to the sorts of things that people say about dead people. Dead people who never once gave any inclination that they believed in God or in heaven, let alone put their trust in the Lord Jesus during their lifetime. People love to say things with such certainty like, well, at least they're in a better place now. Or, at least the pain is over. Or perhaps the most creepy, don't worry, they're just next door. Listen to what the singer Rihanna said after the the recent tragic death of the TV star Corey Monteith. May your spirit be at peace and may you fly with the angels. There is a real need among many people to have some hope, no matter where they get it from, in the face of death. They want to think positive, comforting things. The flip side of this is the less optimistic view, that everything ends when you die. So in light of there being nothing after you die, you might as well spend your life chasing what you want, who you want, uh, for how long you want. Get rich or die trying would seem to be uh, the, the, the slogan for people with this mindset. I think that Liam said last week that for some people, they think that death is a full stop. And that phrase would summarize these people's outlook. You only live once, and then you're in the ground rotting, so you might as well uh, live your life uh, chasing what you like uh, in this lifetime. There's nothing after death, um, so just do everything you like uh, as often as you like, um, and that's it, really. You die, and there's nothing more. Having said that, it's my experience that um, even those who don't believe in life after death uh, like to clutch on to life after death when someone close to them passes away. They like to console themselves with thoughts of them being in a better place. And sadly, within the church, there seems to be similar confusion. Back in 2011, the Reverend uh, Chad Holtz was sacked from his job as a pastor in North Carolina after he voiced doubts that sinners lived in eternity uh, in, in torment when they die. So, what is the truth? After death, what actually happens? Indeed, does anything happen? I wonder whether you think about this as a believer. I wonder whether you really believe that there's life after death. 
Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll uh, know that confused thinking about life after death is not a new problem. The same doubts about future resurrection were apparent in the Corinthian church. The apostle Paul had spent 18 months with this group of people in this church, teaching them the gospel. And we read in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians believed what Paul was saying and were baptized. The problem was that when he left, local leaders rose up and started taking the church in a different direction, a direction that wasn't based on the gospel of Christ crucified and Christ raised. This was causing various problems in the church. Paul, by this time, was in Ephesus, and reports had got to him about these problems. And in fact, the Corinthians themselves wrote to him to get clarification on some issues. And one of these issues was doubt about the future resurrection. You see, what these new leaders had done was lower the gaze of the Corinthian church from their future hope to things that were happening in the present. Some of them didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. Arrogance and envy had crept in, and they'd become impressed with human power and the appearance of things, things that they could experience right now. They'd developed this really human and earthly way of thinking, and they'd forgotten that as believers, their hope should be directed to future things to glorious things which our eyes haven't seen, our ears have not heard, and our hearts have not imagined. And so in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses a wide variety of issues that have been raised in the reports that he has received and in the letter that the Corinthians sent him. Now, Paul could have sent a quick letter back with some bullet point answers to these questions, but we see in 1 Corinthians that he does so much more than that. He's essentially written five fairly large pastoral sermons which just show his great love for the Corinthian people. At times, we also see his frustration as they go against his teaching and uh, against his pattern of ministry. And tonight, we're looking at one of these uh, five pastoral sermons, in fact, the last one in this magnificent chapter 15. Liam's taken us through the first 34 verses of this chapter, and he's shown us that the scriptures teach that the resurrection is not just historically true and theologically vital, but also that life is not empty and death is not the end. Those of us who are in Christ will be resurrected too. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, and we'll read the passage. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, 
the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are also those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those from, of, who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing, nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor of the, in the Lord is not in vain. Well, tonight I'm not defending the truthfulness of the future resurrection. Liam has already done that in previous sermons. It's not the point of this passage, and therefore it's not the point of my sermon. But make no mistake, uh, we will be raised if we believe in Christ. The point of tonight's sermon is to give us a vision for this glorious change that awaits us when Christ returns, and to teach us how to live for him while we wait. And this is, this is a, a dense passage. I'm not going to be able to take on everything in the time that we have. But what I want to do is take three images in the order that we find them. And um, the first two images relate to this future change that we're going to see uh, if we're in Christ. And the third image relates to how we are to live while we wait. And the first image is this, a brand new body. Look at verse, verses 35 to 49. We see uh, this image quite clearly there. And you'll see two examples of the sorts of questions that the Corinthians were raising. They were quite skeptical here. You'll see the first question there. Uh, how are the dead raised? And question two, with what kind of body will they come? And Paul then takes from verse 36 down to verse 49 to answer these questions and to explain what the new resurrection bodies will be like in comparison to the earthly bodies that we have just now. In fact, explain is probably too gentle a word. We can see he's actually quite annoyed with them. You see that from the first two words in verse 36. How foolish he starts off. It's like he's saying, you think I'm a fool for believing in the resurrection of the dead, but in actual fact, it's you that's being foolish, foolish for not believing it. It's not that weird an idea. And he shows them that it's not that weird by giving them an example from their working life. What you sow, verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed or perhaps something else, of wheat or of something else. He's saying, you see the resurrection every day in your life. You go to your field, you go to your garden, you plant a seed, it dies in the ground and it becomes something else. And what died in the ground isn't the same as the thing that comes to life. That's the resurrection. He says that in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's saying it's the same principle at work. This is not science fiction. This is grounded in reality. That's what you can expect to happen to you if you're a believer in Christ. Friends, you don't have to be, um, you have to be a fool 
to question whether the dead will be raised. It's not weird and it's not science fiction. You do not need the men in white coats because you believe in the resurrection. And therefore, you don't need to be intimidated by people who question the resurrection of Jesus or indeed the resurrection of those who believe in Jesus. In light of this passage, you can go, to, go toe-to-toe with these doubters, even if you don't have a field or a garden to demonstrate. Take, no, I'm serious. Take them back to primary school. I'm sure you've all done this if you've been to primary school. You take, take them back to primary school. Do you remember when you were given a flower pot and some damp cotton wool and some little black seeds and you put the seeds in the cotton wool and you put them in the plant pot or the ski yogurt pot if you're of my vintage <laughs> and you leave it for a few days and what do you get? Cress. You've, you've seen the resurrection in action and so will these people if you, if you show them. The resurrection is rational, it is real and it can be evidenced in nature. The Apostle Paul uh, then goes on to compare the DNA that we have now because of our ancestor Adam with the DNA of our brand new bodies that we'll have after the resurrection of the dead. Look at verses 42 and to ver- uh, verse 44 with me. We see that our earthly body is perishable. That means it won't last. It's sown in dishonor. That means it doesn't reflect God as well as it should. It's sown in weakness. That means it breaks. It's a natural body. In other words, it's part of this natural world that dies and decays. But a resurrection body, our brand new body, we can see from the same verses, will be imperishable. That means it's eternal. It will last forever. It will be a body of glory. So it perfectly reflects God's image. It will be a body of power, which means it won't break. It will be spiritual. In other words, we'll have eternal life. In the resurrection, nothing dies or decays. That's an amazing thought. There'll be no unwell or convalescing section in our church bulletin in heaven. There'll be no condolences section. The bodies that we have now are perishable. They're dishonorable, they're weak, they're dying, they're decaying. They're made of dust like our first ancestor, Adam, the first man. He and we are dust. That's what we are. And often it's really tough to live in these bodies. But this body will be transformed into a body that is of heaven. Yes, we bear the image of Adam now. But one day in the coming age, we will fully bear the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to the girl who doesn't eat very well, because she's comparing herself to the models in the magazines. You don't need to obsess over this temporary body. A brand new body awaits you in the resurrection if you're trusting Christ. To the elderly person who's struggling even just to get out of bed each day, receive some comfort from the fact that one day a brand new body awaits you if you're trusting in Christ. To the worn out mum who doesn't recognize herself in her wedding photo, Don't look back to your wedding day. Look forward to your brand new body. To the person who's had some kind of invasive surgery, terrible trials, take heart. A brand new body awaits if you're trusting in Christ. Maybe you're having a hard time getting your head around this idea. You've experienced the pain of human frailty at first hand, maybe through your own illness or death of someone that you love. Friends, you have to get this. In the resurrection, followers of Jesus Christ will not be resuscitated corpses, 
We won't be floating around in bandages with no face, no hands, no feet. We will have brand new bodies. We'll not be ghost-like. We will be glorious. You have a brand new body, a spiritual body, an imperishable body, a powerful body, a glorious body. Does that not make you long for heaven all the more? A day when the constraints of this body and the corruption of your sin no longer grip you. A day when you'll be like Jesus, your Lord. So much worry and thought and talk and money and time and effort and moaning and insecurity is wasted on this decaying body, which is going to die. And so little time is spent on praising God and thanking him and thinking of the brand new body that awaits us when Jesus comes back. It should not be this way. In 2 Corinthians, Paul likens our bodies to earthly tents. Tents that will one day be replaced by an eternal house in heaven. That is the right perspective to have as we wait on our brand new bodies in the resurrection. But what about verse 50? Does that not put a bit of a spanner in the works? It says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Well, that puts a bit of a dampener in things, does it not? I've just raised your gaze from your own perishable bodies to the hope of an imperishable resurrection body. And then Paul says that flesh and blood, which we are, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the perishable, which we also are, cannot inherit the imperishable. So how do we get these new bodies? Well, this is the second image that we're going to look at tonight. Verse 51 and following teaches us that we need a change of clothing. A change of clothing. Look at verse 51 with me. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. I was on the bus a few weeks ago on Princess Street, and uh, we were driving along, and I saw all these people... uh, looking like they'd come from a wedding. You had fancy dresses on and feathers in their hair and uh, smart suits. And I thought, this is a bit odd because it was a Tuesday. I thought, even I know that weddings don't tend to happen uh, on a Tuesday. But then I remembered it was the Royal Garden Party at Holyrood Palace. All these people had got dressed up to meet the Queen because they had to. There's a dress code. And this is what it says, I found out. Gentlemen, wear morning dress or lounge suits, while women wear afternoon dress, usually with hats or fascinators, National dress and uniform are also often worn. Now, as I look around the room tonight, uh, I don't think any of us would uh, get into the royal garden party. But uh, more importantly, dressed the way we are, none of us would get into the kingdom of heaven either. We don't meet the dress code. Not because of the cotton or the polyester or the denim that you're wearing or the tweed even, we're in Edinburgh, um, but because of sinful, as sinful people, Um, our sinfulness and our corruption and our weakness uh, prevent us from being able to get into heaven. We need a change of clothing. We need to be clothed with the imperishable, clothed with immortality, as verse 53 says. What does that actually mean? Well, just like our earthly clothing often bears a logo or a name, so our heavenly clothing also bears an image, the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 57 tells us that we gain victory over death 
through the Lord Jesus. And it is his righteousness that we are covered with if we are believers. For many uh, years, my wife Judith's aunt uh, and uncle had a static caravan in Northern Ireland. Um, and these, this caravan was really not in good condition. Um, it was falling to bits. Uh, you would not want to be in a storm when you're in this caravan. In fact, you wouldn't want somebody to sneeze uh, when you're in this caravan. It was really, really dodgy. Um, and we were there recently, and instead of getting rid of it, they've done something really bizarre. It must be an Irish thing. They've actually, they've actually bricked round it. Like, they've built a wall on four sides, and they've double-glazed it, and I think they've put a roof on it. Like, to the outside, you'd never know that inside this kind of temporary dwelling with its limited shelf life, there's actually there's a caravan in there. It looks pretty solid and pretty, pretty permanent. And in the same way, this earthly tent that we live in, with its limited shelf life, is stripped away, is stripped away to a heavenly dwelling. It's transformed into a heavenly dwelling, sorry. It's not stripped away, but it is clothed with something which is permanent and imperishable. The righteousness of Jesus. We'll have to die to be transformed. But after that, there'll be no more death if we're in Christ. Our clothes will last for eternity. Charles Wesley put it really well in, his, in one of his hymns. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. It's not that these earthly bodies can't be glorious in their own right. We see that in verses 39 to 41. But the glorious change to come will be like nothing we've ever experienced before. The, the, the more glorious than the sun and the moon and the stars in all their splendor put together. A glory that is unimaginable to our fallen minds. Brothers and sisters, we will be gloriously changed in the resurrection. And with our new clothing on, identifying us with the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll then be able to affirm those words that Andy read earlier from the prophet Hosea, which Paul quotes uh, in verses four, uh, 54 and 55. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? It's only when we're clothed with the imperishable and the immortal that we'll be able to belt out these words with confidence. Why, Why is that the case? Well, even though the sting of sin is death, Jesus' blood is the vaccination. Sin must be paid for by death. God's law demands it. But Jesus died a cruel and a bloody death that sucked the sting out of death and satisfied God's holy law. And by his resurrection, Jesus not only destroyed the effects of decay and death, but he overcame sin's deadly poison. Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins robs death of its victory and its sting. Death is not life's full stop. It's only a comma for the Christian. And the story continues forever. Christ's death and resurrection have scored out sin, the law, and death. And when he comes back, our transformation will be complete. Can I encourage you this week to spend some time thinking about the resurrection? We rightly spend a lot of time singing and praying and thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. But most of us only spend a few days around Easter thinking about the resurrection and yet it's so vital to our faith. If we'd only lift our eyes from our fears, our anxieties, our doubts about our faith, our strains, our disappointments, to the great hope of the resurrection and the resurrection to come. The true believer unapologetically lives on hope. 
So it's no wonder that Paul says, thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's gift to us. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' victory. This is the most amazing thing about uh, chapter 15. Victory has been given to us because Jesus died for us. This is the unique Christian hope. Jesus didn't need to die for himself. He was completely sinless. He did it only for us. And his victory is therefore ours. Because Jesus Christ was resurrected, the Christian can have confidence that he or she will be also resurrected. What a gift we have been given. And it's been my prayers have been preparing this for the past few weeks that some here tonight would even accept this gift. If you're not a Christian tonight, I need to tell you that apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no future hope. If you're trusting in your own devices other than the Lord Jesus, death will sting you. It will have its victory over you. But since Christ has been raised, it's possible for you to look death in the face and that it will not have final victory over you if you only will turn from your sinful ways and follow him. I'd love to talk to you more about that tonight if you uh, are in that position. Well, we've looked at two images that relate to our future hope uh, about the resurrection of the dead. The first being a brand new body and the second being a change of clothes. I want us to consider a final image that we find in verse 58, which tells us what we're to do as we wait on this future hope being fulfilled. How are we meant to live before death and the image here is of a job for life I know that is a rare thing these days but we find it in verse 58 let's read verse 58 again therefore my dear brothers stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain let's think about that first part stand firm let nothing move you here Paul's telling the Corinthians not to be moved from the gospel he doesn't want them to be swayed by these false teachers Uh, coming in with their own ideas and uh, denying the resurrection. He wants them to hold firm to the gospel, to not let anything move them from it. He says something similar at the start of chapter 15. He says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. In other words, uh, not what these resurrection deniers are preaching. This was a problem for the Corinthians throughout this letter. They're tempted to ignore Paul's teaching and embrace this false teaching from the resurrection deniers. But Paul is clear, absolutely clear. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Now, standing firm and being unmoved in this day and age are not easy things to do. There's so much pressure to water down the gospel, uh, to soften its impact, and to smooth the edges that kind of ruffle people's feathers. If you stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ in this day and age, uh, you will be seen as a fundamentalist, irrelevant, a religious lunatic stuck in the dark ages. But Paul is absolutely clear. Paul doesn't, uh, Paul would say that this does not matter. Don't, don't, be, don't be swayed by these things. When it comes to doctrine, stand firm, no matter how difficult it gets. Don't be pushed around by what people say, by people who deny the gospel. It was always this way, and it always will be. Remember his words in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 
Friends, the pressure to conform, the pressure to tamper with the gospel message, to make it more palatable, has always been there. But stand firm. Let nothing move you. Paul's instruction about the gospel is really clear. It's stand firm. But what about his instruction about Christian service? How does that compare? Well, if you look down, it's actually the exact opposite, isn't it? It's not about standing still. It's about jumping right in. It's about throwing yourself into it. Do you see that? Look at verse 58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And why are we to do that? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul's basically saying, follow my pattern of ministry. Think of the ways that he describes his ministry as we've seen in this letter so far. Chapter 2. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Chapter 4. He says that God has put the apostles on display like men condemned in an arena, fools for Christ, weak, dishonored. They go hungry and thirsty. They're in rags, brutally treated, homeless, cursed, persecuted, slandered. He says that he and his fellow apostles are the scum of the earth the refuse of the world. In chapter 15, verse 31, I die every day. Could these things not also perhaps describe our Lord Jesus' pattern of ministry as well? This is the work that Paul was calling the Corinthians to. He wants them to follow the way that he works as worked as the way as, as he followed Jesus' work. Let me say that again. He wanted them to follow his way of working as he followed Christ's way of working. And he's calling them back to this way of work because they were going down another path. Remember what he says in chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. They were not at this point giving themselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now according to an old saying, uh, some people are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. That was not true of the Corinthians. And I've not met a lot of Christians who are that way inclined either. I've met a lot of Christians who are too earthly minded to be of any heavenly use. Comfort, ease, relaxation, me, 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 arm's length commitment, arm's length involvement. That's a more common uh, mindset in a church which is increasingly influenced by the world around it. And that was the problem with the church at Corinth as well. The The Corinthians had this mindset which was in conflict with Paul's way of working. They didn't like his death and resurrection ministry approach. They were so skeptical about it. But this should not be the case for believers. We've seen that when it comes to believing the gospel message, we're to stand firm and we're to not let anything stop us from placing our faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And we should throw ourselves into giving everything we have in his service. But do you see the connection between the two? If we stand firm on the doctrine of the resurrection, it will change how we live. This world and these bodies are passing away, so why invest in them? Why devote yourself to money and pleasure-seeking and things that won't last? Paul's command to us is that we would not live for ourselves, that we'd not use ridiculous phrases like live for the moment or you only live once. For true believers will live for the future and will be willing to give up anything in order to work for the God whose presence we'll enjoy forever after we die. Sometimes serving the Lord is hard. In fact, sometimes maybe an understatement. Most of the time, serving the Lord is hard. We're tired. We get frustrated with such little progress. We don't see much fruit 
uh, for our labors. But God's word calls us to remember that working for the Lord is not in vain. That's what verse 58 says. It will have everlasting value. Nothing that is done in Christ or for Christ will lose its reward, whether we see the fruit or not. So that one-to-one with the younger Christian, which uh, is not going particularly well, feels a bit dry. That relative who consistently rejects the gospel that you witness to and pray for regularly. That colleague you keep inviting to Christian events, but who keeps refusing. That Sunday school class who look like nothing's going in. That house group that you lead. These things will take time to ripen. Fruit, fruit does. We might never see it. But how would you describe your work for the Lord? Do you see it as a job for life or is it something that you're on a rotor for a couple hours a week? Are you giving yourself fully to it? Is it full-blooded or half-hearted? Is it full throttle or are you just coasting? Friends, we are to serve selflessly, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, even if it seems that that work may be forgotten, despised, or seems not to be bearing any fruit at the moment. Think of Jesus Christ himself. What was the immediate fruit of, of his death when all the disciples fled? One committed suicide, one denied emphatically that he'd ever seen him or been with him, and only one of them bothered to turn up to the cross. This world loves to give out prizes and have award ceremonies for things that won't last. But many who have been given awards on this earth will find that there are no prizes when they die. And those who have been despised and condemned and made a fool of and rejected and hated for giving themselves in the Lord's service will find a great prize is waiting for them when they die. They will, a, they will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away when Jesus comes back. Seeds are put to work. They get dirty and then they die. Seeds are not that impressive like plants are. But a seed's life is well lived and so is ours, often in the unimpressive and routine service of our Lord because it's a life that is not lived in vain. A brand new body awaits us as does a glorious change of clothes. We who are perishable will then be imperishable. We who are dishonorable will then be glorious. We who are weak, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling weak. I know that I feel like uh, I could do with another weekend at the moment. But we will be powerful. These decaying bodies will then be eternal bodies. We who are clothed in mortality will then be immortal. We'll be clothed with immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. You can be absolutely certain about that. This is not me giving you some overly optimistic uh, nonsense to make you feel better about life after death. It's an absolute certainty because we, uh, as believers, have been given victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we wait on the Lord's coming, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray.